Welcome, my dear listeners, uh, to Voices of the Sacred Feminine, where myself and my guests, well, we believe here we do our best to speak truth to patriarchal power, to predator capitalism, and have the courage to propose a new normal in society, to work toward manifesting that new normal in the world so that the 99% might have a better quality of life. Because, you know, there is an alternative to the patriarchal order, though the status quo prefers you not know it. It hasn't always been this way, and you know what? Even if it has, it doesn't have to continue as it is. There is an alternative to predator capitalism that exploits workers, the environment, and humanity across the globe. We can have a world where women are equal, and 70% of us don't retire in poverty or are punished continually for the male dogma of Eve's sin. The alternative, I believe, and I think many of you listeners out there as well, believe that the sacred feminine offers liberation theology, which we talk about here. Namely, the sacred feminine is deity, archetype, and ideal. It sets us free. And I've written a lot about that in my books, Goddess Calling, which has been described as comfort food to help us find our way during this evolution or transition. Voices of the Sacred Feminine, Conversations to Reshape Our World, which is uh, based on this radio show. Sacred Places of Goddess, 108 Destinations, and Walking an Ancient Path, Rebirthing Goddess on Planet Earth. So thank you, uh, all of you, for being with me again tonight. I know you have so many other choices out there. I know how busy you are, and it warms my heart and keeps me going hearing how much the show means to you. So thank you for all of those emails of appreciation. And um, I promise uh, something new and fresh tonight, uh, as I always do, and uh, I think uh, I deliver. Uh, But first, uh, some thanks go out to Elaine Silver for the use of her music. Tonight's cut was called Tis Time. Yes, uh, it's time for so many things. In fact, some things are long overdue, like calling out our predator capitalist system for what it is, for the suffering and destruction it's been causing. And I wonder, along those lines, did you hear Pope Francis' eight points from his apostolic exhortation, which I believe he was supposed to deliver today? I wanted to read uh, those eight points to you um, Here they are. Maybe it will help wake up people around the world when they see um, some vestiges of Christianity are still a part of liberation theology. And this was uh, what Pope Francis was supposed to have said in part in his uh, speech uh, he was supposed to give today. And I have to admit, I didn't have time to look for it or listen to it, but this was kind of a, a... uh, a sneak preview that uh, was released a couple days ago. And um, he says in his apostolic exhortation, according to London's Guardian, the eight points he wants to make are, number one, capitalism is threatening the survival of human civilization. Number two, capitalism is destroying non-renewable resources for personal gain. Number three, capitalism has lost its ethical code and has no moral compass. Capitalists worship the golden calf 
of a money god. Capitalist pursuit of personal wealth destroys the common good. Capitalism has no respect for Earth's natural environment. Capitalists only see the working class as consumers and machine tools. And finally, number eight, capitalism is killing our planet, our civilization, and the people. Wow. Could that be more powerful? And when you think of the millions of people that actually care what he says, what is that going to do to politicians around the world? I think that's going to be very, very interesting. And you know, maybe that's a perfect segue for our show tonight on the topic of the sacred art of transitioning with Anya Trahan. We are a humanity and culture in transition, or so we hope. That's what we're working for. Transition, I hope, uh, away from sexism, racism, classism, and environmental exploitation, those four things being the legs of that stool of capitalism that we need to kick over and topple. We are in transition away from just the authoritarian father and the oppressive dogma written by men. We are transitioning to, I believe, sacred feminine liberation theology, our new normal. But, you know, change and transitioning, even when we know we want it and need it, it can be a real scary thing. You know that expression, we prefer the devil we know. Even though it's a devil, we sort of know what to expect. So I'm hoping maybe tonight's guest will help us ease any fears or trepidation about this awakening, this paradigm shift we keep talking about, this transition. But first, okay, I'm going to tease you, dangle that carrot, but first a couple quick announcements, and then we're going to say hello to Anya Trahan. So I want to let you know that uh, if uh, any of you listeners are going to be in uh, Southern California this uh, Sunday and next Sunday, I wanted to just briefly mention uh, two talks that I'm giving. This Sunday, Father's Day, I'm going to be at uh, the Emerson uh, Unitarian Church in Canoga Park, California at uh, 1030 for Sunday services, and I'm the guest minister. And um I guess you could say uh, I'm going to be talking about goddess spirituality is not God in drag or patriarchy in a skirt. So if you're around and you're up in the morning and early riser, come hear how summer solstice, fire, and the sun goddesses are actually part of sacred feminine liberation society, theology, setting us free from the shackles of patriarchy and capitalism. And then next Sunday... I will, which is the fourth Sunday at the Goddess Temple in Irvine in Orange County, which is the week that all genders uh, can attend. Come be inspired and, you know, to lean in and reawaken our earliest sacred stories that show how goddess mythology sets us free from the oppression of patriarchy and capitalism. Temple services start at 11 o'clock and... Uh, I don't know, I think both of these topics are, are pretty timely and it helps us understand why sacred feminine in our mythology is, is actually relevant today, how it gives us a roadmap. And it's not just those myths that you read in school and you know grade school when you were reading about Hera, uh, the petulant wife of the philandering Zeus. There's so much more there. We just have to know how to look at it and where to look. 
So, uh, with that all said, uh, let me uh, turn to tonight's guest, Anya Trahan, and uh, let me introduce her to you by way of her bio. Uh, Anya is a Ph.D. and the author of Opening Love, Intentional Relationships, and the Evolution of Consciousness, uh, put out by uh, Changemakers Book, uh, who puts out my books. Uh, She lives as uh, an openly polyamorous teacher, a Reiki master, spiritual counselor, and poet. In 2014, she adopted the name Anya, which in Sanskrit means inexhaustibility. We sure need that today. The name serves as a linguistic manifestation of her life's mission, to serve as an inexhaustible comfort for all beings as they heal and evolve. Dr. Anya lives in Ohio with her partner, Robert, a fellow Reiki practitioner and spiritual counselor. Her other partner, Andrew, a polyamory activist and poet, lives in Boulder, Colorado. So, Anya, welcome to the show. Hi, Karen. Thank you for having me this evening. Well, we're going to have to talk a little bit about the polyamory, too, because I have a feeling maybe some of my listeners might not know what that is, and I think that's for interesting conversation and maybe even part of tonight's topic. What do you think? I think that probably will work well. Okay. Well, you know, I was looking at the materials um, that you sent me, and um, in part of it, you say that the art of transitioning is also the art of forgiveness and con- unconditional love. So I'm curious, do um, do we have to have forgiveness and unconditional love, say, uh, for patriarchy or for the people who perpetuate it and practice it and oppress others and cause so much suffering? And if we do, how do we manage to muster it? This is a very deep uh, way to start, and I appreciate that. I think that uh, the terms forgiveness and unconditional love are actually two different ways of saying um, a synonymous word, in my view, which is acceptance. So, um, so we could just substitute those two words, forgiveness and unconditional love, for acceptance. And my view of acceptance in um, an evolved sort of planet, the moving towards greater acceptance of the potential of human beings, especially within the context of embracing all of our inner goddesses and all of our divine potential. I think that um, acceptance is really key and the way I think of acceptance is dropping the past. So, and it's, it's really hard to do. I mean, it's hard to do on the small scale and it's really hard to do on the large scale too. So, um, because so many terrible things have happened (laughs) to, to humanity, um, people who are working for justice and, equal rights and um, love the people that are doing brave, courageous work, you know, as long as the world has existed, have always been to some extent tormented, treated badly, um, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not, but it's always been an issue. So in order to have 
acceptance is really, I think, necessary to emotionally uh, and spiritually drop the past. So what does that mean? Well, what I think it means is embracing the current moment that we're in right now as human beings. So yes, looking at the facts and the history books and what, what has happened, but really focusing on um, the present moment and what we can do now. And there's so many people now who are um, defectors, I guess you could call them, um, people who are just sick of the normal way. Maybe they are still participating in it to some certain extent, maybe like a lot or just a little, um, but they're, they're either on the border of radically transforming their lives or they're already in the process of doing it. So they're defectors from what's considered normal still by a lot of people. And how can we as change makers <laughs> to refer to our <laughs> publishing company <laughs> um, as change makers, how do we collaborate with those people? Even if those are some of the people who have contributed to some awful things, um, mm -hmm. maybe these are politicians who in their past have mm -hmm. taken money from corporations or lobbyists, or maybe, you know, it could be simple as collaborating with someone who lives in our you know, neighborhood who wants didn't understand what we were doing. Maybe there was some fear or ignorance about our spiritual views or the kinds of things that we were engaged in, even maybe spread gossip about us or in some way treated us with lack of love. And then maybe they realized, you know, oops, I don't really want to live this way. And, you know, how, how can we collaborate with those people? Because because we need as many people as we can get on this right. road to conscious, higher consciousness. No, I, I agree. I, I think we have to work really hard to find allies. And, you know, I, I don't know if you've had a, a chance to listen to many of my shows. You know, one of the things that get me, my panties in a bunch the quickest is, um, you know, the, the callousness of today's, you know, Republican Party. And I think to myself, you know, that's sort of my big challenge. You know, how would I forgive mm. them, you know? And, and, and But I realize at the same time, railing against them constantly, fighting them, um, only has me sort of putting out that same negative energy, and I don't want to become what right. they are. So I think to myself, okay, you know, we learn that the best way to maybe bring people over to our way of thinking and, you know, transitioning them, you know, to use the key word for tonight, transitioning them mm -hmm. maybe to um, maybe open their mind and consider new ideas, um, especially conservatives who are very fearful uh, you know, sociological and, you know, psychologically speaking, um, is to find common ground with them, you know. And, and so then I think to myself, could I really find common ground with Republicans? And I think even Dick Cheney, you know, who I believe is evil incarnate, you know, he's come around on gay marriage, for instance, you know. So, right. you know, all
all the horrible things he's done. You know, I, I would, I, I would, I would not be surprised tomorrow if we heard he conspired, in, you know, for, in and either knew about or was in cahoots for 9/11. You know, but you know, all right. If I really had to find common ground to be able to start talking to this man on some level, maybe there's a, a place. Or Rand Paul, you know, he's anti-war. You know, I could talk to you know talk to him about anti-war. Jeb Bush. You know, he's got a Hispanic wife. You know, maybe there's a segue in there to, you know, where he doesn't hate immigrants as much as the rest of them, you know. Yes. So, um, yeah, so I, I think if we if we really try, um, that's probably, um, you know, the way to go. And, and I like I like your idea, you know, if, if we substitute the word, you know, forgiveness um, uh, for acceptance, um, you know, then then maybe it's a little bit easier because you know I think when we forgive people, we kind of maybe do it for ourselves anyway. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know we don't necessarily forget what they do. You know, maybe we have to remember to, to protect ourselves. Uh, but I think we forgive them so we don't continue to feel that angst that maybe holds us back and makes us feel so bad. You think? I completely agree. That's one of the things that I talk about in um, my book, Opening Love, is we do practice forgiveness for ourselves. Um, and it, it's not meant to be like a selfish thing, um, but but it, thinking of it as um, a way to release like all that negative energy and baggage in order to just move forward with the work that we're doing and the people that, you know, trying to manifest the kind of world we want, we can't have all this toxic stuff we're dragging around with us. So, um, and when another actually thing that has come to my attention recently, I was talking to one of my um, favorite spiritual teachers named Paul Lowe. Um, He's this great, great teacher lives in Australia and he was um, kind of critiquing my book and he said, you know, Anya, he said in a way, he said, I disagree with all the stuff you wrote about forgiveness in your book. And I said, really? And he said, well, actually, if you think about it, there's really nothing to forgive. And when he explained what he meant by that, I thought, oh yeah, I do agree. Um, If you think about it's kind of a, a deep concept to grasp, but if you think about how the only way that we can evolve as a species is to truly love each other, then we can't even think that there is a concept of that we need to forgive someone because that does subtly imply that they've done something wrong and it is a huge kind of leap to consider this but even if you think about the worst possible atrocities murder violence rape this is this is definitely um hard to hear but I truly believe, along with Paul, that those 
things were done by people who truly believed in the moment of doing them that they were doing the best possible thing that they could be doing. Well, you know, I I agree with you, and I'll add something to that. Um, you know, I uh, I you know going back to you know my analogy of Republicans, for instance, I'm sure the stuff they spew and you know their their oppression of women and all of their stuff that you know I'm just totally opposed to. I'm sure they believe they are doing the best possible thing for society. You know, um, yeah. And um, and the other part of this, you know, it, it, maybe it's part of what your what your mentor meant, or or at least I can understand what he meant from the perspective of, say, you you look at these horrible people who create this suffering, and I wonder if you know them along with us are not just. You sort of players on the stage, so to speak. You know, is the analogy I've I've heard used before. You know, we're all playing our part, whatever that is. And when we think about the horrible things that have happened to us in our life, well, you know, we have two ways to react to horrible things. We can either be reactive or proactive, and it sort of gives us opportunities to. Um, become a better person to learn from it. It's almost a gift. Yes. You know, when somebody does horrible things to us, can we, um, you know, make, you know, lemonade out of lemons and um, rise above it and um, build our character, you know, so to speak. And, um, Completely, and so I, yes. I, yeah, you know, so if you look at it that way, these enemies, um maybe or really just there as our teachers. And I don't know about you, but that has helped me um, forgive and accept people and things that have happened to me in my life, you know, because I realized that the awful things these people did actually made me stronger, wiser, helped me define myself. And, um, you know, had those things not happened... You know, um, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm almost glad they happen now, if you know what I mean. <laughs> it makes me think about uh, the trajectory of my life in that for most of my life, up until the last couple of years, I had, like, severe different chronic illnesses, almost to the point where um, I was basically bedridden for a number of months and... You know, it was quite awful and bleak. I mean, at one point I even got to the point where I was contemplating suicide and I was asking my partner about what are ways that you could kill me because I'm just done. <laughs> but <laughs> then he, um, luckily he said, you know, stop saying that. I'm not going to help you do that. Um, but then I found holistic medicine and I found my way out. Now I'm a relatively healthy person. And I look back and I think, oh, I mean, the being so ill has made me have so much compassion for people, especially mm-hmm. people who have physical illnesses. So it led me to study Reiki. So now, you know, I work with people. I train them in Reiki so they can heal themselves. I just... <laughs> It's wonderful. I've connected with people on such deep levels, whereas before, I mean, 
eh, I mean, I was pretty wrapped up in my suffering and heartache. And I don't know if I would have just, I don't know. Um, I guess what I'm saying is I hear, I agree with you. It's like the being ill was a gift. And, and while it wasn't like someone doing something to me, it still was a pretty awful tragedy that I had to endure and then coming out of it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You, know, you see, I mean, look at the motivational speakers that are out there. You know, if you, uh, I, I look on some of the speaker in at some of the speaker bureaus sometimes because I'm a speaker myself, and you know, so many of them uh, are motivational speakers because they've overcome some horrible thing, you know. Um, and right. you know, I, I, as as you were talking, I was I was trying to think of like really horrible things. You know, is there anything that we can think of in history that we couldn't classify under this category? And I started thinking about Hitler and people who were in concentration camps. You know, it would be interesting if uh, people who were in places like Auschwitz. You know, I wonder, uh, I'm sure they've written books. I, I wonder if any of them have come to this this thought as well, you know, that, that they mm-hmm. really can forgive and must forgive, and was it somehow a gift? I mean, you know, if, if those yeah. people, um, you know, or, or somebody who was, you know, maybe um, a prisoner of war or something like that, you know, something really horrible, um, you know, beyond the yeah. kind of everyday stuff we're talking about here, you know. Um yeah, so so it is it is interesting. Um you know, these this idea of acceptance and forgiveness and so you know, as so yeah, because like you said, um in order for us to move forward and you know, the in order for us to go on and not get stuck, you know, mired down in the muck of depression or uh, you know, all of those different emotions that can come up and uh, get us stuck so that we don't transition, so that we don't um, take that next step to mm. whatever it is, you know. So, I mean, so it makes perfect sense to me that that's, that's one of the steps. Um, are, there, are there other key things that one must do um, in the sacred art of transition besides the forgiveness or acceptance or the, you know, or or these sorts of um, love that you're talking about? Well, I think it's key to remember that relationships don't stay the same. I mean, you no matter what kind of relationship that you're talking about, so uh, family, romantic, collegial, you know, any kind of relationship um, is going to change over time. So even in the case of, let's say, um, two people get married and they make vows to stay together forever and you know, love each other for their whole lives till death do us part. Well, let's say they do accomplish that. You know, they both die very old and, (laughs) you know, they've done it. They did it. But they're who they are at the time of their death is not who they were when they got married by any means. Mm -hmm. So, but I think that with especially with um kind of maybe we're going to segue more a little bit towards uh topics in my book about polyamory here um 
with, especially with romantic and um, sexual relationships, people have this sort of concept that a relationship should stay fairly constant and the same, that that's a good thing. I mean, it doesn't help that we have all these movies that, you know, (laughs) like it's always ending with a wedding and everything's supposed to be hunky-dory, you know, for the rest of their lives. Um, So there's this idea that like, yes, we are together. Yes, we are, you know, married or we're in a partnership and we live together and we have all these plans and goals and we're going to accomplish them all. We're just going to stay best friends forever. Well, maybe, (laughs) but maybe not. And Mm -hmm. the maybe not part is what a lot of people have difficulty with. So in my work with people through the relationship coaching that I do, I always like a broken record, bring up the concept of impermanence which is mm-hmm. a Buddhist concept. So the really idea scary. is... That's scary for people. Well, it really is, because then it, it actually goes into concepts like death and <laughs> things that are really deep. Ending. Um, it's Ending. all interrelated. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, as somebody who's been married 30 years, you know, I mean, I, 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 I get what you're saying. You know, when you first get married, you think everything's going to stay exactly as it is right then forever. And, well, I think that's our naivete, especially if we get married when we're young, you know. But you don't realize right. that things are things are going to change. You know, you may move. You may, somebody may get sick. Uh, you know, things shift in a relationship. And if you're fortunate enough that both of you sort of change together and still have the same priorities and you you know you want to work through those transitions then you're good to go but um you know but that isn't always the case you know um you know you, you see marriages all the time like in Hollywood you know one of them's more successful than the other and maybe it breaks up the marriage or um, you know, just different things, you know, happen in life. You know, maybe the death of a child or uh, I know I interviewed, uh, you know, one woman who was talking about how, um, you know, roles are changing for men and women. And, you know, men used to be the major breadwinner and now uh, they men are having to get used to this, the what they call seesaw. Uh, you know, relationships, and, and this, you know, and this is a transition where maybe, you know, during a, 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 the next phase of your marriage, the husband is going to be the stay at, stay at home person, maybe taking care of the kids, making less money, while the wife is the major breadwinner, and maybe they'll shift again, and maybe they'll shift again, you know, up and down you know, sort of like a seesaw. So it's like, you know, you really have to, um, you, you know, you have to be flexible, you know, and um, and I think that, you know, sort of a part of the idea of what you said, you know, things uh, embrace the impermanence, um, you know, and, and don't be so rigid, you know, be, uh, because otherwise I think you're sort of setting yourself up kind of for disaster, you know, if if the impermanence is too difficult and you can't be flexible. Oh, completely. And even if a relationship has to transition into another form, um, can 
can we be okay with that? So, I mean, it's so sad when basically um, in our culture, there's that uh, pretty common phrase of breaking up Mm -hmm. that, you know, it's people, that's what people call it. I mean, you break up um, and it's always presented as a complete disaster as, Mm -hmm. you know, that people feel and they need to blame the other person that the friends of the people who broke up need to pick sides that there's this feeling that there's, Oh God, there's something terribly wrong happening here. And well, in the polyamory um, movement, uh, there is the new term that they're embracing they're basically, we're trying to sort of get rid of this notion of breaking up and replacing it in people's consciousness, whether they're poly or not. This is a a concept that can be used no matter how you identify as monogamous, you know, non-monogamous, whatever. Um, But the concept of transitioning instead of breaking up, because transitioning helps, if we think of it as transitioning, it's not a you know, there's not those negative connotations to it. And then we can think of it as how can we, you know, if we're going through a transition where the relationship does change form. So maybe it's, um, it could be, you know, in any direction, it could be that maybe two people are not going to be, um, romantically connected anymore, but maybe they've decided they still want to co-parent children together and be friends. Mm -hmm. So there's Mm -hmm. actually a book that just came out um, by that actress. I think her name is Maria Bello. I think it's called um, Love is, I think it's called something like Whatever Love is Just Love or something like that. And she writes about how um, she just she realized she was a lesbian, and then she was married to her husband, and they then transitioned their relationship to being friends and co-parents, and then they basically have this wonderful connection Friendship. still. Yeah, yeah, well, and there's well, yeah, none of this I, blame. Well, yeah, I was about to say. Uh, well, you, when you said blame, yeah, because the idea when you hear the the term uh, breaking up, that makes that that sort of comes with the feelings of failure, you know, yes. as a, as opposed to this idea of a transition. You know, because, look, you know, I've had girlfriends that are no longer in my life, you know, and I m- maybe miss their friendship. But I remember something, someone told me something, uh, I, I, I'm probably going to do a bad uh, job of paraphrasing this, but it was something to the effect of, you know, friends enter your lives sometimes for a lifetime, sometimes for a season, <laughs> you know, and, you you know, and, and if you just accept that and you're okay with it, then when they're no longer in your life, you know, whether they moved away or they got mad at you, whatever it is, then, you know, it's easy to, easier to accept that, you know, that's just life, you know. Yeah, um, if we collected every friend that we made through our lives, we yeah. would not be able to take it. <laughs> too yeah, much. yeah, we would, how would we have the time for all of them, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Um, but but yeah, I I I think this is um, you know this is really a, I, I think a, a valuable um, 
thing you're putting out there because uh, I, I think probably too many people, um, you know, still have that old the old idea, you know, of the breakup rather than you're transitioning to something else. I mean, cut. Look at Bruce Jenner. You know, um, Caitlyn now uh, talk about transition. And you know, and, yeah. and, and and you think about transgender people. You know, sometimes, you know, their gender is very fluid. You know, they're maybe trying one thing, and you know, and that's not quite right. So, you know, they may shift somewhere else. Or you know, people who are bisexual. Um, it's not. You know, it, I think we really have to learn. Life is not black and white. It's very gray. And. Um, it, but but you know I think that's what makes life much more rich and interesting, don't you? I mean you look at characters on TV, mm-hmm. for instance. The black and white ones are boring. It's the gray characters you turn on their, you know, you look forward to their shows every week. You know. You know I'm thinking of the character of um, oh what's his name in Mad Men, the main guy. What's his name? Oh, yeah, uh, John, John Draper. John yeah, Draper. Yeah, Don Draper. I mean. In so many ways, he's a complete jerk, but in so many other ways, he's this loving, sort of sweet, innocent little baby. And you're like, oh, I just want to hug you sometimes. And and <laughs> so, yeah. You know, who else, you know who else was like that? Was, um, I, I think, um, Tony Soprano was another wonderful gray character. Yes. And yes. even even I'm going to say it, I know my feminist friends hated that I liked those books, but Christian Grey in Fifty Shades of Grey, he was another one mm. of these very gray characters that you really liked some parts of him and you really hated other parts of him, you know? <laughs> I mean, if we're all in some ways gray. <laughs> I mean, we have our good sides and our bad sides. I mean, there's the side that you and I are portraying right now as these very witty, intelligent people. But then, I mean, an hour from now, or what are we going to be doing? I don't know. I'll probably just be, I don't know, just in my yeah, maybe pajamas. Yeah, maybe sitting in front of the TV watching South, watching South Park <laughs> or something, you know. Yeah. So, and not that that's bad. It's just like there's so many sides to people that, yeah, you can't, you just, it's not black and white. Exactly. I, I love right. that. So, so Anya, tell us a little bit about um, polyamorous relationships because I, I suspect maybe some of my listeners don't really know what that is. And how do you, how do you manage to make that work? Because I think that must be pretty challenging. Yeah. So, polyamory is, well, first of all, it's not really a new thing. Um, <laughs> it's, it's it's basically the idea that with honesty and consent, the consent is important, that's a very important part of the equation, um, that consenting adults might prefer to have multiple um, intimate, emotional, or sexual um, connections with others. So, some people claim that polyamory actually should be thought of as um, a sexual orientation along with gay, lesbian, bi, all that. Um, I like to think of polyamory more as a relationship orientation, but that's just my own spin on it. There's no right or wrong. Um, yeah, well, that makes but, more sense. That makes more sense to me. Um, but well, mm-hmm. well, if you're a Mormon, you know, like was it Big Love on TV and he mm-hmm. had three wives? Is that an example yep. of polyamory? 
you could say that. I know that some people would staunchly say no because um, the wives in that show, which I love that show, by the way. I've seen every episode, so I'm glad you brought that one up. Um, You know, the wives are – so they're polygamous, which basically is a religious um, practice of um, one man with multiple – wives but it's 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 not what i would call a sex positive sort of orientation wherein you know sexuality really isn't very open or fluid Uh, for example like the wives couldn't just start falling in love with each other they can only Mm -hmm. really be in love with their husband they have to be straight you know um and and even the way they portrayed sex on the show like they really don't talk about sex and i know that that um, there's that other reality show. I don't even know if it's still going on about the the polygamous family um, that was on show um, TLC. Um, that was an interesting show. The way they portrayed it in that show, and then just the things I read about polygamy. You know, sexuality isn't necessarily celebrated. It's sort of like, well, we're going to do it to make children. And, you know, it's kind of okay if God sanctions it within the context of this marriage, but mm, it's, it's, it's not really a happy, full, you know, thing. Um, so that would be a difference, whereas polyamorous people are, for the most part, really sex positive and open about sexuality and sort of just accepting of different ways of being. I know mm-hmm. a lot of poly people who are queer, trans, transgender, pansexual, um, so there is that difference. And then, I mean, I guess that's the main um, difference between polygamy and polyamory. Uh, but I think of polyamory as a general, I try not to emphasize actually the sex part, not because I don't love sex and not because I'm not sex positive, but it's more in my view about the sense of um, egalitarianism and community that it can instill because mm-hmm. In our culture, um, U.S. culture and many parts of the world, there is still that norm of the monogamous family, um, the nuclear unit economically being sort of on its own. And you, you know, have to sort of fend for yourself Mm -hmm. where a lot of poly families, it's, you know, they're coming together, multiple adults, different genders, different numbers. You know, there's two or they could even as a side note, you know, be two people that identify as polyamorous because they're open to other people meeting other people. But anyway, um, you know, different numbers and they come together and they share um, finances, resources, childcare. It's very um, just, it's, it's actually very, if you look at it, um, beneficial to the planet because, you know, you're not wasting resources in the same way or sharing well, you're, objects. You're kind of making a little tribe in a sense. Exactly. You know, I, I can see the benefit there. I think where, for me anyway, it would get difficult. Okay, so you're in a relationship with two guys. And um, I guess I wonder, and, and if, I've, if I'm not being too personal, I mean... Oh, you can say you, anything. You, okay. Well, do you all live under the same roof? No. Um, we... Let's see, I'll tell a brief summary of what all happened. So I met my husband um, 
you know, uh, seven years back or something like that, we were married for a couple of years. We had heard of polyamory. We thought, oh, that sounds interesting philosophically hmm. um, and politically too, but we didn't explore it because we hadn't really had the impetus to because neither of us had really met anyone that we fancied. Um, what happened was though, um, I met a beautiful woman who became one of my best friends. So I approached, you know, Andrew, my husband, and I said, and, you know, Hey, I have this interest in this other person. And he said, cool, go for it. She's awesome. I love her. Um, so it was a pretty smooth start that way. Um, then we moved, we relocated that relationship with the female kind of just transitioned into just more of a friendship. And then um, we moved to where we currently live now in Northwest Ohio. And I started seeing Robert. And what happened was, is um, Andrew, Andy, and I were living together. And then Robert lived uh, in an apartment um, in the same town. So we just kind of all hung out a lot. We never lived together. It didn't really make sense to do so at the time. And then mm-hmm. um, Andy decided, um, well, we both decided our careers were kind of going in separate directions. Um, he wanted to go out to Colorado to pursue different things. Um, I was on a certain trajectory and we thought, you know, let's do long distance. I think we can do it. We, we can do this. <laughs> um, and so he moved out to Colorado with his other partner, um, who is a dear friend of mine and still is. And then um, Robert and I then moved in together here and we're in that town. So, but you're um, still married no, we, to the, to the guy in Colorado. No, that's another twist. So oh. we transitioned our relationship to um, we still call each other partner. That's the word mm-hmm. that makes sense. Um, we did get legally, we dissolved our marriage legally um, for financial reasons because it was a bit confusing um, mm-hmm. <laughs> for that reason. And then also what happened was is he, um, he and I both agreed that for political reasons, we weren't comfortable with the label of husband and wife anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. At the time, he wanted to marry his other partner as well and was pretty well irritated that legally he couldn't do so. And so he's like, you know, I just don't feel, I feel like it's a lie that like the world acknowledges you, Anya, as like, you know, the most important person in my life, when in reality, I have two most important people. So we both decided to, you know, not be legally married anymore. Um, And then, so I mean, that that pretty much catches us up today. But I will say that, you know, (laughs) Robert and I, we're transitioning right now, we're in the middle of a transition, because we've both met someone that we like, um, together, um, so we're actually both dating this person, this female that we really like, and um, she lives out in Pennsylvania. So it's right now a long distance relationship, but there's already talks about living together. And I do right. think that's going to happen in the next year. So I think me, Robert, and this other person, the three of us will be living together soon. 
Um, and I mean, it's every polyamorous situation and story is different. It's just like any monogamous story. It's sure. just different and unique with all the people that are involved. Some some people all live together. Some people don't. There's some poly people who call themselves poly singles who just really are content being really free and living an individual life. So they live on their own. They love living alone. And they just have different partners or lovers um, or intimates that they go on hot dates with and have a great time and maybe do mm-hmm. sleepovers, but they really aren't interested in getting married or, you right, know, right. Well, you know, living and, together. And, for li- and for listeners who might think, well, God, this just sounds like a bunch of swingers. You know, I mean, I, I would, I would, re, I would remind them that you know there were a lot of cultures where, um, you know, there wasn't this idea of marriage, and even the, you know, the woman would become pregnant, and the, you know, the father of the baby was really not even that important, you know, because yeah, and 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 I and I and I, I, I my I'm having trouble remembering the culture uh, right now. I want to say it was in China where, um, you know, it was, you know, kind of these, uh, you know, these sort of, new, these I want to say these families where, you know, the women held the assets and, um, you know, they would, they could take lovers and, but, but they didn't yes. necessarily have to be married to any of these men. And the idea of, um you know the parentage of the child it it just wasn't a big deal you know the woman's mm-hmm. you know brothers were more the father to their children than you know maybe any of the men that they maybe had a relationship with and you know i think we have yeah. to open our minds to um you know maybe different types of uh of relationships uh because you think about you know, I, I think marriage was originally, you know, just a financial contract. You know, you you see, mm-hmm. you know, women were offered up uh, in marriage, uh, you know, to combine kingdoms or uh, to keep peace between warring factions or maybe it was a financial, uh, you know, relationship. And, um, you know, I, I think we really do have to keep an open mind about um what even a family is. I mean, I thought it was so wonderful. You know, Tylenol has this new commercial out, and I thought, oh, God, conservative heads across the country are probably exploding. But they were showing you all of these different types of families. You know, there were gay couples. There were, you know, mixed-race couples. There were, um, you know, families that had different races of children. And, you know, I, I'm just imagine the heads exploding, you know. Wow. And well, my husband said, well, they probably don't show that Tylenol commercial in the South. <laughs> and it's probably true, you know. They, that probably yeah. couldn't exist in a red state, you know. But, um, uh, but you know, I, I, and honestly, I mean, I, 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 I feel really good about my 30-year marriage, but I think I got very lucky. You know, um, mm-hmm. I mean, I was married once before, and this is my second marriage, and it's lasted a long time, and I know it will last the rest of my life. But, you know, I don't think people, most people probably were meant to be monogamous because life is a really long time. And like you said, <laughs> you know, there's so many transitions and changes that we go through. It probably is not often that both people 
are so in sync and so on the same page that they want to stay together during those transitions. Yeah, and the fact that most people feel like they have to live up to that ideal is really mm-hmm. causes a lot of unnecessary suffering. Because, yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I consider myself a spokesperson for polyamory, not because I think it's like a superior choice to any other choice. I think, though, that people need to understand there's different options. And mm-hmm. when they know, when they start to realize that, then they can make informed decisions rather than just defaulting to, well, I should be monogamous and I should get married and I should stay married to that person for the rest of my life. Well, I mean, no, not necessarily. I mean, if that's what you want to do and that works out, but, you know, maybe, and maybe even that is what you want to do and maybe it doesn't work out, but that's okay too. You know, it's not a failure. It's just, right. that's right. what happened. Right, right. And, um, you know, you you just think about, um, you know, during the course of of your lifetime, uh, you know, how many many people lead miserable lives? I mean, how many times have you heard, oh, well, you know, they stay together for the kids, you know? So they they suffer, you know, they give up a decade or two of their life and they live in, in misery. Um, and you know, in all 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 different sorts of um, uh, ideas like that, you know, because society tells us, and I mean, I hate to say, but it's probably religion. You know, religion tells us that you have to conform and fit into a little box and be a certain way. And if yeah. you're not, well, you know, there's something wrong with you. You're a deviant or something. You know, where. Um, You know, I I remember when I found out that, uh, you know, there isn't even a word for homosexual um, in Greek, you know, because it just wasn't a big deal. People didn't think about (laughs) making the distinction. And, God, and, you know, here in the United States, to some people, gays are an abomination. I mean, it's really really crazy um, when you think about how rigid um, I think our social structures are. And, you know, maybe we're getting a little off track because we were supposed to be talking about transitions, but it's through these sorts of social contracts that, you know, I think we experience um, the, 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 the need, you know, uh, maybe for the transitions, and we just don't know how to handle them because... Um, you know, society deems us a failure if we don't perform in a way that society says we should live our life. Yes. <laughs> and we need a better vocabulary for talking about relationships and talking about sexuality because if we if we don't have the vocabulary, we don't even know how to even ask questions about it. Well, and I and I bet there's a double standard too, because when you talk about the sexuality, you know, okay, let's just think about it for a second. To you know, to um, probably a narrow mind looking at, uh, a, say, a woman with with two male partners. Um, oh, you know, they sort of and maybe possibly a third guy. female one. On the way, yeah. sorry. <laughs> but but yeah. don't you don't you think the guys sort of get pat on the back? You know, if they have multiple port partners, but the woman looks like a whore, you know, I'm sure Actually, there's still got to be that, huh? There is that, but there's also a surprising twist, which is that it's actually 
really, really difficult for male poly guys to find people to date, to find potential Mm. partners, because both males and females have this idea that guys are creeps. And, you know, I understand why that has come into our consciousness, but there's just this idea that they're just perverts and, you know, not, not in it for the right reason. So like, um, both my partners, Andy and Robert, they have really had a hard time, um, just meeting people because it's, they're really forthright. I mean, as soon as they realize they have an interest in someone, they'll just say, Hey, I'm Polly, you know, yep, here's what it means. And, a mature, overwhelming 98% of the time, the person is utterly disgusted and won't even listen further and will just, you know, be distraught about it. And I wonder if that isn't just our conditioning, you know. Oh, Um, yeah. You know, because if they realize the benefits of it, if they didn't, they weren't conditioned to think that this was a perverted and abnormal thing, uh, if they might not be more open to the idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there is that also, like you said, the back slapping of good job. Like um, my some of my friends, uh, my one friend, she's a sex blogger, and she writes about different experiences that she's had. And she wrote this one post about um, she and her partner, Polly, and her partner has another partner, female. So he was at the bar with his two female partners sitting on a couch, snuggling with them. And how all these guys kept coming up to him, giving him high fives, saying, yeah, man, good job. And they didn't even know him. They were just mm-hmm. coming up to him. And nobody was saying that to the to the ladies, you know, and right. not even really even engaging them or talking to them. And my friend kind of thought, man, this is a weird situation (laughs) this is odd well and you know i don't know i i I mean i'd have to really sit with it a bit but you know i think this is a lot more honest than having taking a lover on the side you know um and that's what most people do right right and and they just don't talk about it you know or uh you know or i mean look at all the you know politicians who have been caught in whorehouses or with you know, with a gay lover because, you know, they they didn't they didn't know how to transition into a lifestyle that was really more uh in in keeping with who they really were, you know, because society, you know, doesn't allow them to be honest about who they really are and what they really want. Right. Part of the issue, too, is that even with more progressive politicians, for example, um, gay, out, out gay politicians, which there's not too many, but, but the ones that are, and then the out maybe um, leaders of the community or um, gay businessmen, corporate people, people that are in the public eye, those people, they have a very, um, they feel the need to, appear as monogamous because mm-hmm. in order to be anything other than that it's perceived as completely just icky and deviant and bad because there is um unfortunately still um the stereotype there's a stereotype yeah and and yeah and, and, yeah. and, and I mean well, let's face it Americans are very narrow-minded 
and I think I think it, it I think we can probably thank Christianity for that, um, or just the Abrahamic yeah. religions, um, uh, you know, probably for you know the narrow mindedness, especially when it comes to sex. Um, yeah. You know, because if, because if you said, look, this was just a, you know, we're we're doing this for financial reasons, then everybody could think, okay, well, this is this is this is a partnership, this is a business partnership, and probably nobody would blink an eye. But as soon as mm. sex is involved, and <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it then that's suddenly, um, you know, that's what makes it tawdry and. Um, you know, and, and messy and ugly and distasteful. Is, isn't that weird? <laughs> it's very weird. And I mean, I'll I'll add to this discussion a little bit of a more political discussion, which is um, part of why polyamory is so. I mean, maybe it's the whole reason that polyamory is seen as so deviant and bad is the sexual aspect to it, like you were saying. And um, this is, you know, not widely known, but polyamorous people now number in the thousands who have been fired from employment, who have lost their children to child protective services, who some of them have even ended up in jail. Um, (laughs) I wish I was joking. Um, There is a a group called... In some states or something? Yes, how do you end up in jail for polyamory? Well, basically what happens is you are a sex-positive person, and maybe you – I'll give one example. Um, A lot of the people who are polyamorous, they're also involved in other kinds of communities. So um, a lot of them are involved in the sacred sexuality community, which is basically – the growing movement of people who celebrate sexuality in terms of its spiritual potential for growth. So there's a lot of workshops, um, trainings, teachings. Um, It's definitely not always something you can read about on the internet. It's very much like, do you know someone who teaches this kind of class? I mean, you could, the, the, the more mainstream thing to think about is like Tantra. Uh Um, Yeah. 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 I I think I know the kind of groups you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, but, so, but they're consenting adults, though. I mean, yeah, but when you get people who are very close-minded and usually religious, um, conservative Christians, they can spin things out of control and create a situation where people do end up in jail. I mean, for me, um, I'll tell you that about two weeks ago, I had um, two part-time jobs, um, sort of like day jobs, I guess you could call it. Um, And I was actually fired because my book just came out, Opening Love, and I've been giving some readings and talks in the community about polyamory, and I was let go from both of those positions. Wow. And and I live in a... Do you live in a red state? Do you live in a red state? (laughs) I do indeed. Um, So... You know, I live in a, so a town that has about 30,000 people. And, and honestly, you know when I would – oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say how hypocritical, you know, because you you know these people 
um, oh, it, it just makes me so mad. I mean, it reminds me of like, you know, the thing on TV recently about Dennis Hastert, that Republican who's now gotten caught for paying off, uh, you know, these these young people that he molested when he was a uh, a coach a wrestling coach and uh, and and you know he he had that in his past while he was trying to um impeach Clinton for having an affair i mean the hypocrisy <laughs> wow. of these conservatives just boggles yeah. my mind okay lights my hair on fire but anyway i'm sorry so finish telling your story <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, so uh, the one position I was actually told directly, and it's, I even have it in writing, um, you know, the reason that you're being fired is because some influential people in our community basically told us that we had to fire you. But there, it's Can you sue? An organi- what was that? Um, well, Can no, because I... This is the thing I've been discussing with different legal experts and authorities. If I were to do that, my whole life would basically just revolve around that because there is no legal protection for polyamory as an orientation at all. Nowhere. So there has been, for the most part, all the court cases in the U.S., Canada, other places, the judges pretty much for the most part rule against polyamorous people because they don't, there's no precedent for it yet. So the people that go to bat for this stuff are really like dedicated to, okay, I'm going to make my whole career about this. Now I I decided that I want to talk about it in interviews and things like that, but I'm not going to leak just legal stuff just makes me depressed. So I don't want to go there. But, um, yeah, so the first place they did, they said, you know, you're poly, you're fired. The second place, it was what I understood to be because I'm poly, but they used a lot of language to cover up the effect. Essentially, they had, they didn't like that I'm a sex positive person. Um, they chart, they drummed up some stuff about how I was sleeping with a colleague um, and how that was inappropriate. But the fact is, is they didn't have any rules on the books about anything regarding relationships between colleagues. So they essentially fired me for a non-existent role. Um, And then when I talked to people, like, what really happened? You know, my friends and other colleagues, they all basically, yeah, it's because you're poly. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, I knew that. So, you know, that happened to me. Because, I mean, you know, people, people, I mean, even if it were true, I mean, people people fraternize, at work all the time, you know. I mean, how many people have met their spouse um, at work? You know, I, I think it's just because yeah. you know you made them uncomfortable uh, because you're different. You know, I mean these these people, um, you know, like I said, narrow-minded. Um, you know, they just uh, have real difficulty with anybody who's not exactly like them. You know. Um, it, it's it's yeah. such a shame, and I, I'm sorry for that. But, you know, I, I think you will probably um, – you should move to a blue state. <laughs> um, I'm and, working on it. <laughs> and, In the process you know, of working on it. You'll, you'll overcome it. Um, but, you know, I like this other thing you say, that there are no mistakes, you know, that the word mistake uh, is one of the greatest confusions caused by a fearful ego. Um, did you want to mm. talk about that a little bit, you know, as part of this yeah. idea of the, the, the art of transition? 
Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I was getting a little to an angry place just now, um, which is not what I want to do. So the way um, it, it kind of the no mistakes concept ties back into the the not even needing to forgive and just accept idea because um, everything that happens happens. So at a certain level, it's you can't argue with it. You can complain if you want, but what is that going to get you? I mean, you can have rational political conversations like the one that we're doing right now, but but if it's in the service of helping people awaken to new truths or helping people feel maybe that they're not so alone, then it's a mm-hmm. good thing. So I don't think, you know, I don't look, what I'm trying to do is, you know, my in my recent situation is not to look back and think, oh, that was a mistake working at those places because I should have known that that was going to happen and why was I so naive and yeah. blaming myself and blaming them when in reality, I'm sure that, I mean, just what has already come out of that situation is the first thing is before that happened, in a way, I didn't really fully realize how important what I'm doing is being an author writing about this stuff I thought well I like doing it (laughs) I like writing and I like to you know get some books out there help people out but it wasn't fully manifest as a really driving need of mine it was like a want but now with what has happened with you know getting fired it's a need that um, I want see, to you, talk you about. The, I, I think what you're trying to say is you see the need to open open people's minds. Um, yeah. You know, so, so that so that you know there is, um, you know, more awareness. There is more flexibility. There there is more tolerance um, for 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 different ways of life. Um, because I mean, you yeah. know what? That sets that sets everybody free, you know. But that but that can make some people afraid, you know. Because if if you're the type of person who is rigid in your little box and change just scares the shit out of you, then <laughs> you you don't want somebody yeah. like you coming along saying, "Well, it's okay to try new things." And you know, look, I don't mean to beat this subject to death, but I have thought about it so much over the years you know there is a physical difference between liberals and conservatives and you know when i think we're talking about you know conservatives tend to be people who they say um you know will stick with authority even if authority oppresses because Mm -hmm. they are they are more fearful liberals on the other hand are willing to try new things they are less fearful in the middle in the brains of liberals and conservatives are really different. And I mean, I find Mm. that amazing, you know, that it's not just, you know, maybe it's not just, you know, that idea of is it nature or nurture? Is it our conditioning Mm. that makes us like that? No, I think there's more to it than that. You know, our brains are actually different. So when, you know, you run into these, you know, narrow-minded rednecks who, you know, they see life a, a very, you know, very rigid way, um, you you just scare living daylights out of them, you know. Um, that's why I, I know. can't imagine ever ever living in a red state again, because I I think I would just wither up and die because I couldn't be who I am 
at all anymore. I would have to pretend to be something totally different. And, you know, who wants to do that? Yeah. Life's too short. <laughs> um, exactly. But, you know, this, but this idea um, of transitions and, you know, besides the fact that it's it's difficult and it's scary because, you know, maybe your partner is moving in a different direction than you are. I mean, that's, you know, that that is cause for alarm, cause for concern for some people. I mean, especially if you rely on one another, you know, um, maybe you're financially dependent on one another, you love the person who is growing apart from you, or if you have kids. I mean, kids really complicate the situation, don't you think? I mean, could you be polyamory with kids, or would that be too confusing? Oh, I would love that, actually. Um, The person that my partner and I, uh, Robert, are dating right now, you know, things are actually moving fast and we've been having these deep conversations like what do you want out of life those kinds of things and well we're discovering that she really wants to have children and (laughs) it's funny because I adore children and can't get enough of being around them but I've never felt the urge to actually have my own like to give birth and like you know just do it myself Um, but I love I I love the idea of like having children around all the time and raising them. And then my partner, Robert, he, he, it's funny that he, he's really scared. He's never saw himself as a father. He says that's too much responsibility. Um, But he still is willing to move forward with this person that we like that really wants children. And I think it might happen. And I think um, what our goal is, is to we we would ideally like to expand our tribe, you know, as much as possible. As I mean, not not to like you know a huge number, but you know, get a good solid group of people together that share the same values and love being around each other. And maybe there'll be kids involved. And I think if there are, that would be truly truly awesome. Um, there's a lot of uh, there's a new book. It's called um, I think it's called the Polyamorous. I think it's called something like the Polyamorous Family Next Door. It's by Elizabeth Sheff. She's a polyamory researcher. And mm-hmm. it basically is a collection of stories by um, poly families with kids and their struggles, their triumphs and everything. And she's setting – Elizabeth Sheff, basically her whole career is sh- trying to set out to show that poly children aren't going to get screwed up. It's kind of like, you know, showing that, like, the children of gays and lesbians aren't going to mm-hmm. get screwed up. It's the same right. idea. Right. Um, Yeah. uh, Well, I I was about to say, I think the hard, well, I mean, I'm just thinking about myself, and I think the hardest thing I might imagine in a polyamorous relationship might be dealing with jealousy. Mm -hmm. That is the big one (laughs) that everyone (laughs) brings up when we talk about this. I think what's really exciting about uh, polyamory is the like I was saying before the new vocabulary that's coming out of the movement that not it doesn't have to be that you're poly to to use these concepts or practices it could be anybody so with the idea of like using transitioning instead of breaking up there's this term um, which is coming into prominence which is called compersion um, which is Compersion is basically the opposite of jealousy. So compersion is being happy 
for your partner or your lover when they love someone else. Hmm. So okay. it's actually a skill. It doesn't automatically come to most people. Like you can't yeah. just be, snap your fingers and say, oh, yeah. Like if you imagine your spouse or your partner loving coming to you and saying, I love someone else. I mean, probably for most people, their first reaction would be, ah, I don't like that. But it's a skill and it can be um, worked towards over time. Yeah. And there are different well, ways that you can do it. Well, you know, I'm thinking of going back to the big love analogy, you know, with the three wives and the one husband's. Um, you know, I have I, I have spoken to Mormon women, and Mormon women tell me, uh, have told me that uh, they really sort of like the idea of sharing a husband because yeah, uh, extra help, you know, to take care of the kids, to ha- take care of the house, and they aren't always the one on the spot to provide sex for the husband. You know, they can share yeah. that. However, however, um, I think. You know, well, like you said, you know, the Mormon situation is a little bit different because it's three women with one husband. I think if, and I, I don't know, I'm, I'm thinking it's different though. Say you're living in, in a in a small little tribe. Say you've got five or six people living in a house, or even three or four people living in a house, and you switch off now and again, and maybe different people have their favorites or something, or one person is getting more attention than the other person is getting, I think it could get complicated, don't you think? Yes. <laughs> okay, it okay, can. I just wanted to make sure and I'm not crazy. <laughs> but no, you're not but, crazy. <laughs> but, you know, but maybe that just goes back to the idea of, you know, we're we're so caught up in, you know, monogamy being the way, and, you know, maybe we just haven't evolved enough as human beings to, uh, what was the, that new word you just said, to be able to Comper- be... Compersion. Compersion, to be happy that mm-hmm. our lover is loved by more than just yourself, you know. Um, you know, maybe if the person who's feeling left out also had another lover, you know, um, maybe that makes a difference. You know, if they each have two lovers or something, then, you you know, you're not just feeling left mm-hmm. out if your lover is with somebody else. You know, I, I would imagine a, a threesome is more complicated than a foursome. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, it all depends on the people involved. <laughs> yeah, 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 oh. I know, it, 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 it would. But, you know, you make me start thinking about communes, too, you know, Um uh, and, and I mean, I, I know in communes, you know, everybody wasn't necessarily sleeping with one another. But you, but mm-hmm. you, but I, but the reason I'm saying this is, as our society changes, you know, we already know nuclear families are changing. You know, we are transitioning away from the man and you know the husband wife and and what is it, two point something children. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. You know, th- that's gone. You know, we have single mothers now. We have gay couples now yeah. you know maybe yeah. polyam- polyamory is the next on the next horizon you know and it in and i think also too if we are going to help save the planet we're going to have to start thinking in terms of living in different types of communities instead of everybody in these big houses with these huge footprints 
and maybe we are going to have to start thinking tribally again and and you know and start thinking of different ways that that can work you know how do we transition from this very i guess you could say individualistic um society where it's sort of survival of the fittest and mm. you know we're all sort of doing our own thing to a more community inclusive dependent tribal sort of lifestyles um yeah and there's actually yeah go ahead <laughs> well no that no that was it i i was just thinking it's going to it's going to take a lot of um reconditioning i think on our part you know i mean just like millennials yeah. are coming up now and they you know they say that millennials aren't as sexist or as racist as you know maybe their their parents and their grandparents you know maybe this will just naturally evolve um it won't even be an issue a few generations from now i i don't know because this will become the norm yeah. i totally agree well it was interesting in that I, uh, two or three years ago, taught a course. It was an English course um, at a university, and it was it was about um, LGBTQ issues, and then I also added polyamory into the mix, and I had students research polyamory for, like, their final research paper and watch some documentaries about polyamory, and we even brought in... <laughs> quote, real poly people to, you know, have the students talk to them. And, um, you know, just besides myself. And it was really interesting because when I was planning the course, I was imagining students having a very strong negative reaction because because of, you know, how conservative my area is. And they did not. They basically shrugged most of the time and sort of looked at me like, why are you even making a big deal about this? I mean, there was a few students who were offended and pretty upset, but there was like two out of the class. And for the most part, students were just really interested in it. And they thought, oh, maybe I'm polyamorous hmm, and really got into the research. So, yeah. And, and I talked to them, you know, what do you, what would your friends say about this? And that seems to be the trend that I'm seeing is the younger people, especially um, I host a polyamory support group in my home. And most of the people who come are really young. They're like between 18 and 25 and they're out and they don't really care what people think and their friends support them. And it's just not a big deal. So I think that we are, um, on the road. I think it'll take a generation or two to change the hostility towards polyamory and the remaining hostility towards um, LGBTQ people. But I mean, we're on that path. Yeah. I think we're, yeah, and I and I yeah. really do think it's the sexual hang-up. You know, I think the, the sex part of it is what freaks people out, you know, uh, because they just it, imagine this, you know, debauchery or something, you know. <laughs> And uh, but but yeah. if you really if you really think about um, the the benefits of it, you know, if you if you can put aside the jealousy, you know, or the competition, you know, and that's part of sacred feminine ideals, you know, putting aside the jealousy, putting aside the competition, you know, it's more about partnership, it's more about solidarity. Um, I think people might realize, at least in theory, if they can't 
go there yet and actually do it, I mean, think of the mm-hmm. benefit, really, because you create a bigger support system for yourself, you know? Um, yes. And, it, I mean, it, it makes more sense. Um, you know, you're, you, you, I, I mean, if, look, if you have a big family, if you're, if you're lucky enough to have a big loving family that you know is always going to be there for you to rely on, but, you know, we all don't. Um, so for, for those people especially, they can choose their family too, as opposed yeah. to, you know, some families who are stuck with people they really don't like too much when they sit down at the Thanksgiving table, you know. But, <laughs> you know, this this could really be a really good way to go. I, I like this the more I think about it, Anya. <laughs> and it's really, again, it's not always, it's not even sometimes about the sex at all, because here's a, an example. Um one of the people that I was in a poly relationship, I wasn't even sexual with um, because we were just dating the same person, but we were still for a period of time, all supporting and um, committed to making each other's lives better. And again, it, you know, it, some people say, well, how come you're still not with that group of people? And I would say, well, we all transition to doing different things. We all still love each other. We all, all the people that I've been in different polyamorous situations with, there is no animosity on my part. Um, I'm happy for them for what they're doing in their lives. I do, I do though want um, to make a more permanent tribe um and i think robert and i are on our way to doing that now um we're very much like wanting to find other people to live with us and create this more stable thing but anyway it really isn't about the sex um there's a lot of poly people that i know that actually are asexual or even celibate like a lot of um I know, for example, one friend of mine, he's a Buddhist. He's a strict Buddhist. He lives a very minimal lifestyle, but he identifies as polyamorous because his partner is polyamorous, and he is fine with it. He's happy about it. He himself doesn't go out and seek other partners because he's just not into it, and he barely – I mean, he's sort of sexual, like, in these little ways, but he's not really a sexual person. Um, Mm -hmm. And he, but he identifies as poly because philosophically and spiritually, that's what he thinks is the most evolved choice. Right. So there's so many ways to be poly. Well, yeah, it seems like there must be a lot of different variations of what poly could be because I'm thinking if you take the sex out of it, how is it different than, say, uh, you know, just a group of friends, you know, that, that sort of look out for one another. What makes the difference between a, a group of close-knit, tight friends who look out for each other, um, especially if you're not living under the same roof and there's no sex? Is it, I, 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 you know what I'm saying? Am I, am yeah, I missing I a key component that that distinguishes polyamorous group from just a you know close knit group of friends. Well, that is a really awesome question. So much so that I just got the chills because I'm like, oh, this is fun to think about. Um, I I think that if you got a group of really close tight knit friends, if they heard of polyamory, 
as a philosophy of living, they very well could identify that way. And it's not like the poly community would reject them and say, oh, you're not really poly because you're not sleeping together. Being poly, identifying that way is, is a way of raising awareness for other people. Because, yeah, you could you could choose to not label yourself as such and not tell other people that you're poly and just be that way. But But taking the label and talking about it is a way of raising awareness. It's like educating mm-hmm. society. Um, right. So I would say that those people definitely could be poly. Now, granted, here's the like sort of par- other twist to it, which is if they're all deeply loving friends and they're open-minded, I would guess that some of them would probably end up sleeping together because <laughs> for the happened. most part, People yeah. like sex. <laughs> right, I mean, right, 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 right. Yeah, because, you know, I'm trying so, to distinguish between, like, for instance, you know, we've been talking to some of our older friends about, you know, when we retire, are we going to try to create some sort of support system and tribe, so to speak, oh, where we, you know, maybe all live in a big house together or, you know, maybe we buy a piece of land and all put, you know, these uh, double-wide trailers on it. I don't know, something. You know, something so awesome. that we can try to, um, you know, cre- you know, create something so that we can support one another. Uh, because none of us have children. You know, we're, we're, you know, either single or married. And, you know, we want to have some security and, you know, the security of our, you know, of our camaraderie, of our friendship, of our loyalty to one another. But mm-hmm. that seems different, I think, at, at least in my mind, than polyamory because I always associate polyamory with sex. But if it isn't, you know, it could be, you know, five or six people who buy a big house and live together because you've pulled your resources. Yep. You're helping each yep. other raise their kids. You're, you know, taking, you know, uh, turns cutting the grass and taking out the garbage. Um, I mean, you have created a family. It's just a different type of family. And I, I guess I'm just thinking maybe poly, you know, polyamory just has to come under an you know, is just another version of family. It is. I mean, the word polyamory itself translates into meaning many loves. Poly, many, amory loves. So it's about love. And that is the core of it. And that's, that's what I was trying to get across in my book, Opening Love. There's a lot of books out there about polyamory right now like something over maybe 40 now books on the market about polyamory. And a lot of them, um, they're more like nuts and bolts. Like, how do you do this? How do you not feel jealous? Um, How do you, just different like how-to things. Whereas my book, I felt filled a gap because it focused on the what I felt is the core of polyamory, which is the spiritual um, Mm -hmm. aspect about love so, right. you know, um, that was my goal. And I yeah, think, I, yeah, go I, I'm ahead. sorry to mean to interrupt you. Well, I was just going to say, I I feel like, you know, th- that I think it, it, in a way sort of, I, I'm glad you did that because I think that's more appealing to more people. It sort of broadens the 
potential for it because especially if you do take sex out of the equation and it's about people who are loyal to one another, who care about one another, who trust one another, um, mm-hmm. then it's different. You know, it. You know, I, I think it... I don't know, maybe it, it lends legitimacy or credibility to it because then it just doesn't look like a bunch of people having sex, you know? Right, right, which is unfortunately has a negative connotation to it. <laughs> so, right, right, right. But, but uh, polyamory actually brings up some interesting political issues that you wouldn't normally think about. So, for example, in the city that I live in, it's actually um, illegal for more than... What was the number? I'm trying to remember. I think it, yeah, for more than two adults that are not either married or biologically related to have a house, to live in a house together, to like rent a house or own a house. Now, granted, the reason they, the city officials say is because there's a university and they wanted to avoid like these big frat houses Mm -hmm. and parties and all these things, but but it does discriminate against poly tribes because that's, I mean, it's illegal. At one point, my partner and I were thinking about moving in with one of our friends. Now, she's not our partner, but we're, we were very close, and we wanted to pull our resources, so we were thinking about it, and we started going around looking for places, and then we discovered a lot of the places were like, you guys can't live together because it was me and Robert. First of all, we're not even married, and then it was our friend, so that's a lot of places it's like that. And um, I think, oh, darn, I forget the other state I just learned about. I read some article recently. It could be, I don't, I don't, I don't want to hazard a guess, but they came up recently that there was a poly family that couldn't find housing because it was illegal for more than two adults that aren't, you know, married to live together. So wow. it, I think things need to shift in the mode that you're talking about this more egalitarian community support network, because yet people, people for the most part are feeling isolated. They feel like they don't have a safety net. These economic times are disastrous. And what are we going to do about it? Right, right. And you know um, what you just said about uh, people not being able to live under the same roof Um, I don't know if it was the same story, but I saw on CBS News, this was back east, Blue State, I want to say it was New Hampshire, or it was Connecticut, one of those. There, um, these these people went in, went you know, pulled their resources, bought the, bought this gorgeous house. I think there were nine of them, a couple couples, a couple singles, um, and they had a few kids, and their neighbors filed suit against them because they weren't, you know, they, they used some law that was on the books. Yeah. They they say. Yeah. Because they didn't, they they didn't want people to start boarding houses because these were big houses, you know. But this whole idea, but you know, so what are these people going to do now? You know, they have invested in this house together and they're fighting it in the courts. But one of the points was that we have to redefine family, you know. And I mean, that's yep. a perfect that's the perfect example. You know, these people weren't living a you know. Uh, you know, this wasn't a uh, you know debauchery or anything. This was just people pooling their resources, and these were, you know, upper middle class people 
but you know, but this is also discriminates against the poor when you think about it. Yes. The poor the poor are the middle class because this was a this was a neighborhood that was big money. You know, you looked at these houses, these were million dollar homes probably. And they probably had their idea of who they wanted to live in their neighborhood. And it wasn't yeah. these these average people like you and me. You know, they wanted yeah. they wanted the senator to be living next door. You know, not the school teacher. <laughs> well, Anya, um, t- time has flown here, and um, we were only going to chat an hour, and here it's been an hour and a half. But I have so enjoyed this with you. Um, you know, Thank I still you. have a few things I have to do before I wrap up tonight's show. So um, I'll want to give you the closing word. Is there anything we haven't spoken about you think is important to make sure listeners know? And please also give the title of your book if you have a website and, you know, how people can find your book. Yeah. um, Just to wrap up, I guess, to reiterate what we talked about in the beginning, which is acceptance. So even though things seem ridiculous in many ways in our world, and they are ridiculous and crazy, um, to have the peace inside of ourselves to not let it completely (laughs) overwhelm us um, in order to change the world and change ourselves. We need to have that peace of accepting what's going on, even if it's really difficult, having that inner, inner calm. So that's, I think key. And uh, my book, uh, Opening Love, Intentional Relationships and the Evolution of Consciousness is available on Amazon.com. And uh, it can be available in other bookstores if it's uh, if you go request it. I mean, it's in some limited bookstores. Uh, hopefully, it's going to start catching on and be available elsewhere. It, it the dis- my publisher um, has a great distribution arm, as you well know. So mm-hmm. you know, no matter if you're listening to this in Africa or New Zealand, and you think this is an important. Um, way of thinking about the world and please request this book in your local bookstore to get the word out that this is important and if you would like to visit my website it's uh, net. so d-r-a-n-y-a dot n-e-t and you can learn about different things that I do with people relationship coaching um, spiritual counseling sessions and I look forward to meeting with people. And if you just want to shoot me an email, you can go to my website and there's a contact um, page. Just send me an email and let me know what you're thinking because I think, you know, what Karen and I talked about tonight was amazing and one of the best interviews I've ever (laughs) experienced. And so I'm just wondering what people have to say and I'd love to hear from you. Okay. Well, thanks. And you know what? If anybody wants to continue the conversation, um, go to my Facebook page. Uh, I put out a little blurb right before we started that uh, we were going to have this conversation. So if you, I didn't open the chat room, but uh, if folks want to make comments, uh, go to my Karen Tate Facebook page and underneath um, where it, uh, you, you know, where you see the little ad for the show. Um, you know, please uh, leave your comments or uh, ask your questions, and uh, both Anya and I will be able to, uh, to see it there. That's that's just another option. 
because uh, I think this was a great conversation because I really do think that this is going to be the way of the future. And, um, you know, we're here with our pink-handled machetes uh, blazing the trail. So good for you, Anya, and um, thank you. Thank you for this. I, I really enjoyed talking to you tonight. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for your open mind. Okay. All right. Good night, and keep in touch, okay? Thanks. Okay. Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, what a great conversation. And it really just goes to show you that uh, as this world transitions, um, you know, we just have to be ready. And are we going to uh, ride the roller coaster of life uh, white-knuckled and afraid? Or are we going to have fun and hold up our arms and scream? You know, I mean, think of it when you ride a roller coaster. Isn't it so much more fun where you just let go and you lift your your arms up and you scream and you just enjoy the wind in your face and the exhilaration. It's an adventure. It's a journey. Don't be afraid. You know, there is really nothing to be afraid of. So um, I have some things I want to make sure you know about uh, before we say goodnight. Uh, but first, uh, I owe Joe Carson uh, a commercial for Dancing with Gaia. So please have a listen. Most people see humankind as really separate from nature and separate from the earth. I'm as much of this earth as a rock or a tree is. And I came out of it. This is, this is my mother planet. I grew out of this earth. As long as we conceive of divinity as above us or outside of us, or that our bodies are somehow less divine than spirit, there's no way that we can change our course. Well, that was uh, Serena Roney Dougal, and she's one of the PhDs who um, gives us some great advice in the documentary uh, Dancing with Gaia uh, to reconnect with the earth, to discover our sacred sexuality, to find a way to tap into our interconnectedness and um, feel the earth energies of Gaia. And besides being a great documentary that um, has a number of uh, experts like uh, Dr. Serena Roney-Dougal that you heard there in the clip, um, it also comes with a 45-page uh, mini book uh, that accompanies the film. And as I've said before, uh, it, is, it, is great. Uh, it, it is a great resource uh, that I think would make a great gift or something you would want to have in your library. Uh, I think whether you uh, are new to this or you've been doing it a while, uh, I think it's valuable, and um, it, it, it will teach you things that uh, maybe you hadn't um, thought of before. So give it a shot, uh, Dancing with Gaia by Joe Carson. And uh, also coming up, um, I want to make sure you know about um, there is going to be an eco-feminist uh, conference at the Museum of Goddess History and Culture, uh, which is uh, right adjacent, the Goddess Temple of Orange County in Irvine, California, on Saturday, July 25th and July 26th. Um, 
you might want to check that out. Um, there's going to be academics, activists, and uh, all sorts of uh, folks uh, talking about um, uh, how to take leadership and um, and try to create an egalitarian society. You'll have opportunities to get involved in social justice uh, activities, environmentalism. Um, they're going to be talking about climate change, women's issues, uh, how to evolve out of this violent patriarchal society. And, you know, it's very affordable. Uh, tickets are 20 to $45 for both days. Uh, and the conference is generously sponsored by Charlotte Cressy, who we will have on the show. And um, she's also affiliated with the National, National Museum of Animals and Society. Uh, they are, I think, co-sponsors of the event as well. So that is Saturday, July 25th, and Sunday, July 26th, uh, two days, Ecofeminist Conference. I think it's called uh, Breaking, uh, Breaking Barriers. Uh, for more information, you can go to this email address, which is West Coast. Ecofem at gmail.com. That's West Coast Ecofem at gmail.com, or you can call 949-651-0564. The other thing I've mentioned before, but I want to say again, um, you you really don't want to miss the Goddess Spirit Rising Conference uh, that's going to be in Simi Valley the second weekend of September. Uh, I don't have the dates in front of me right now, but it's the second weekend of September. It starts on Thursday. It runs through Sunday. Uh, Incredible presenters, over 40 uh, presenters and ritualists and vendors. Uh, This is for men and women. Uh, I feel very fortunate to be giving a talk uh, on Friday. Uh, I'm also going to moderate one of the films, uh, Femme Women... um, Healing the World, which um, I'm very proud to say I was interviewed in. And um, I'm also on a panel on Sunday. There's a lot of really cool things going on. And the presenters are coming in for this conference from literally all around the world. So check it out. Go to GoddessSpiritRising.com. They're on Facebook. They're on the Internet. Um, You can stay for the duration of the time. They have really nice accommodations. A really nice venue. This is not a camping event. Um, you don't want to miss this. Uh, you really don't. Uh, this is going to be uh, a great event. GoddessSpiritRising.com. And um, if you like what you've been hearing tonight and in past shows, I hope you'll show your appreciation and support. Uh, please go to my website, KarenTate.com. And once you're there, go to the Goddess Store page. Um, I would really love it if. Um, you uh, scrolled down the Goddess Store page and bought a book or two and made a donation. Uh, And you can make a donation of any amount if you use the very bottom PayPal button. It will allow you to make a donation for as little as 50 cents if if that's all you can afford. And you know what? If uh, you can't afford to buy a book or make a donation right now, that is okay. You just keep tuning in. And uh, drop me an email. Let me know what you like about the show. Give me an idea for a guest or a topic. Um, And you know what? If you think I'm doing a good job here, if you like what you're hearing, uh, if you have anything to say about the show content or the guests, uh, let me know. Uh, I love hearing from my listeners, your gas in my tank. 
And uh, finally, I wanted to close the show tonight with a couple quotes that uh, I really uh, that I really liked and uh, to continue to uh, uplift. Um, this is from Thomas Paine, and it's a new quote. Uh, believe it or not, it's the first time I stumbled across it was recently. Thomas Paine said, "We have it within our power to make the world over again." And isn't that exactly what we're trying to do? Also, Henry David Thoreau said, if the machine of government is of such a nature that it requires you to be the agent of injustice to another, then I say break the law. That was Henry David Thoreau uh, talking on the topic of the duty of civil disobedience in 1849. And this is a quote from my dear husband, Roy Tate. I love this quote. He said, Goddess is not a religion. It's a way of life. You don't have to go out and kill someone for her. Instead, you have to go out and love someone for her and yourself. I love that guy. I think I'm going to keep him a few more years. And uh, our uh, Arund Hadi Roy, um, she said, There is no such thing as the voiceless. Only the deliberately silenced or the preferably unheard. And this last one reminds me of Sarah Palin and Michelle Bachman, I'm sorry, uh, or, or some of these folks we see talking on Fox News. Uh, this is by Bertrand Russell, and uh, Bertrand said, The trouble with the world is that the stupid are cocksure and the intelligent are full of doubt. You probably know people in both of those camps. I know I do. It's hard to be certain. It's hard to be confident. It's hard to be sure of yourself. I think the people who are smart enough to know they don't have all the answers are the ones that I feel more comfortable being around. Well, I think uh, that about does it for tonight, dear listeners. Um, Thank you for tuning in. And um, please uh, be back with me again next week. And uh, I think we'll close off tonight's show with, uh, uh, with a little music. And um, I think I'm going to go with Celia. And uh, this is her cut uh, from her single called Meta Prayer. Good night. Have a wonderful weekend. And uh, I'll be back next week.
things of the world. 